hey. No, we, we, we can't go back there. No, we, we can't, can't, we can't too, go back, can we? We can't go back. You, you can never, never go back. back. Hey, welcome again, everybody, to the Stellavision podcast. You are making... Oh, not history. That was the people before you. Uh, <laughs> That's Adam, welcome an audience. <laughs> no, listen, uh, my name is Stella, otherwise known as Stellavision. You are here at the Newport Comedy Room, and this is a live podcast happening right now. As I said before, if you don't know what a podcast is... Ask your children. Uh, <laughs> they'll let you know. Can I please welcome tonight one of the, I think I can say veteran without sort of, you know, conjuring up terrible images of flamethrowing. Making me feel and like an older gentleman. Yes, old. Um, we're certainly past that yard up. No, no, please welcome uh, to our podcast and to the stage veteran comedian, author of Three titles, oh, fiction and non-fiction. Oh, God. And very, uh, probably the most famous recidivist outside of, <laughs> oh, gee, I don't know, uh, Norman Gunston maybe. But listen, welcome Greg Fleet. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, ladies and gentlemen. It's uh, it's very nice to be here on television. And uh, even though we're not making history, we are uh, the, apparently we're the we're the Buzz Aldrin of <laughs> uh, of space exploration. That's right. There was Neil. There was Buzz, and then there yeah, was the other guy. Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and. Mike Collins, mm, I think, Glenn. was the guy who didn't even get to walk on the moon. Just was had to sit there in the thing, going, "Fucking hell!" Was it not John Glenn? No, John Glenn. Was he a was, museum? I think he was a. a I don't think he ever got to do it, but he was one of, one of those guys in the lead up, you know, like when they just go, yeah, fly around. this, fly like this moth. upside down into that thing. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's the bit. We know heaps about the moon and that's it. <laughs> now, uh, this has been unprecedented because Greg's actually sold his entire stock before. <laughs> I've got uh, three. We've got three left. <laughs> but um, so as you know, because you were here tonight as witness to the uh, television event where Greg was the headline, that he's been a comedian for a very long time. Greg, how mm. did you start in comedy? He uh, can't remember. No, I can. I um, I had no interest in it. I, I had no interest in it at all. I was uh, an actor, and uh, I studied actoring, and uh, I was. I was doing a play and during the play I met all these comedians and that's right, I was doing theatre sports as well, doing impro and met all these comedians and uh, and they kept saying to me, oh, you're really funny, you should do stand-up comedy and I was like, I would rather shoot myself in the face with numerous guns than do stand-up comedy. I could, I was just thought, I could think of nothing worse, like as far as just being embarrassed and having people yelling at you and all of that. And um, one night I was working at this nightclub and um, they used to come there sometimes and hang out. And one night they came and uh, they brought acid with them. They brought LSD with them and they g gave me some of this LSD. So I'm tripping about an hour and a half later. I'm tripping out of my mind. And they said to me, hey, you should do stand-up this Monday at, uh, at the Prince Patrick. And I was like, yeah, of course, I'm into that. And uh, so that was that. And then, you know, like... On the Sunday, the day before the gig, they rang me up and said, so you're all ready for tomorrow? And I was like, well, what's going on tomorrow? And they said, you're doing stand-up comedy. I was like, no, I'm not. And they said, yeah, you said you'd do it. On, and I thought back and I could vaguely remember the conversation. And they said, it's too late. It's been advertised. Like, you know, and I was like, oh, God. In hindsight, who would give a shit if someone no one had ever heard of didn't turn up to something, you know? <laughs> and uh, so I had to do it. And... 
to my surprise, it went really well and it was really enjoyable. Well, Abby Hoffman has a lot to answer for then. He is the yeah. man who invented the LSD and... Uh, mm. Well, yeah. he didn't invent it, but he made it popular. <laughs> okay, he semantics aside. <laughs> all right, first fight of the uh, television interview. Um, all right, I'm going to take you back again. Greg was born in Michigan, which is mm. apropos of nothing really, but except <laughs> that um, he's not an Australian, so... you Not know, a we're, proper we're, Aussie. No, we're very parochial here, so we can... Mm. Um, you know, I hate you with an imprimatur, I suppose. But <laughs> so you grew up in Geelong. You're a, you're a Westie. Yeah, I was born in born in Michigan. So basically moved from Detroit to Geelong, which is which um, is the same. Yeah, pretty much. My parents were my parents were extremely right wing, and I think one of the reasons they moved. And my father got offered. Uh, he was a designer with Ford, and he got offered a slightly more senior position here. But also they were. Um, my parents were quite right-wing and, and kind of quite racist, I think. And that was the year, 1967, where uh, black, black people in, this, in Michigan, in Detroit, basically finally went, no, we've had enough, and they rioted and set fire to a lot of things. And there's actually a movie that came out just recently, which I happened to just see by accident, called Detroit, and it's about that year. And it didn't occur to me until years later that, oh, right, that same year we moved... Uh, and so they've obviously just gone, oh, no, like, black people are starting to demand things. Let's go somewhere where the black people have been completely dominated and rubbed in, you know, they no longer have a voice. So we came here. Um, so, yeah, we sort of went, went from being America to America light. Now... Know, which is... <laughs> it's just a case of how high I reckon with Australia. I, I consider well, myself Australian, but it's really upsetting to see Australia just do what America says. It's like New Zealand are so admirable. There's there's so much to be admired in their approach. You know, they, I I think New Zealand is a remarkable place. You know, the way they just go, hey America, suck it. You know, <laughs> I don't think they say that officially. And how great's their prime minister? Uh, well, she is pretty terrific. Yeah. I don't think she says suck it. She I doesn't think, say suck it. I think she says it in very eloquent terms. But um, <laughs> well done to Justine Arden. Um, now, look, Greg, you have made a career out of telling your story with a heart on your sleeve, which mm. is funny because actually your big breakaway story was ten years in a, in a you know in, in a, a long sleeve shirt. Long sleeve shirt. So you didn't really wear your heart on your sleeve. You actually covered you it covered up. Covered it up. But let's jump right in there. So heroin has been a huge part of your story and yeah. heroin has been a huge part of the literature, literature that you've written. You've actually got three titles, all of which deal with it to some extent. Uh, but the second book, the uh, non-fiction title, if you haven't read These Things Happen, I really recommend that you do. Mm. Uh, the first half is incredibly heartbreaking and the second half's a little bit different. So let's get to the first half of that book. These Things Happen is a memoir that Greg Fleet wrote a couple of years ago and um, published by... Published by um, Pan Macmillan. And uh, it's really an exceptional and uh, kind of a – it's like an autopsy, really, in many ways. And, and Greg leaves really nothing to the imagination. He tells it as it is. Mm. And my question is uh, – in fact, much of the book was really a little bit like the journey of you giving up smoking, which I notice you haven't, have you? <laughs> um, well, I, I generally have been vaping, <laughs> you know, which, which is actually a hell of a lot better for you than smoking. It's, I could tell – um, Which I is a bit like saying smack is better for you than crack. Which but, it, uh, uh, it actually is. But uh, um, <laughs> I was, I was, 
like I'd be lying in bed. I was breathing to like hear from cigarettes and I can feel it already. I've been back on the cigarettes for about a week and a half and I can feel it, the difference already. But I was like breathing there and I remember my, my partner lying in bed going, dude, you're dying. Like this is, I was like, <sighs> and when I started vaping, I, within about a, a couple of days, I could feel my breath you know my lungs are, you know it's still not great for you but it's a hell of a lot better than cigarettes well here's a heartbreak for me so during tonight's performance greg kind of revealed that we shared something <laughs> including an apartment sorry. and other stuff sorry and that's fine that. no i don't mind because i didn't think you would no i don't because i am in fact the producer of this podcast and can <laughs> edit it anything out. i like uh so that part's not a problem for me but here's the heartbreak for me is um there was a period of our life where you were as far as I was concerned the funniest person in Melbourne and probably oh. the, the, the probably the best looking person in Melbourne too oh. and one of the most intelligent people I'd ever met gonna, um, can I if you edit this bit out can you give me that bit? <laughs> <laughs> I want to play that to my ex-girlfriend yeah yeah you sure which one yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> Ow! <laughs> so here's the heartbreak, though. So yeah. that the heroin has got in the way yeah. of the genius. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So just to backtrack, uh, Greg was a uh, Geelong Grammar student, which is weird because you don't really suit Geelong Grammar. Not really. Not rah, really. Rah. Well, you don't have a stick up your ass. No, I was. I was like the. We weren't poor, but after my father died, and as you all know, he didn't he faked his own death but after he uh faked his own death we went from being quite wealthy to being like you know kind of poor like my mum suddenly had to have two jobs and um we we're at this really expensive school but they gave us a, they put us on a bursary or something so it was so weird being at that school just surrounded by such rich kids it made me resentful it this is a horrible thing to admit to but it actually made me resent my mother for not being richer. You know, being surrounded by all that wealth and being a kid. So I wasn't, you know, I wasn't being rational. But I remember thinking, you know, well, why can't I have a pony? You know, like, where's Tarquin? You know, like... No, I know, and your poor mum. And isn't it interesting yeah. that Geelong Grammar kept you at that school knowing that you couldn't afford it? It's kind of like yeah. they were the dealers. Yeah, yes, that's really interesting. That's uh, well said. I put something on Facebook on the way here saying I'm on my way to do this. To, and I said that you were um, incredibly smart and very good at asking questions. And there you go, bang, you just proved me right. I um, did. That, that, yeah, and, and then the weird thing was when my mother's father died, he left her... Uh, a chunk of money, not anywhere near what he should have left her, considering she was a single, single mother on the other side of the world. You know, what should he have left her? More, more yeah. money. And the school, uh, when they found out he had died, sent her a bill uh, for all those years that you know we'd been on the bursary, and it took like it gobbled up like two thirds of what she'd been given. You know. well, full disclosure, I've met Greg's mum and I thought she was an awesome person. I know, she was so good at that. She'd met all my friends, loved her and then when there was no one around she was just a horrible, horrible woman. <laughs> oh. Alright, so here's my question to you. Um, shitty things happened to you, definitely. Very. I don't think there's probably anyone else in the room or anyone listening that could admit to the fact that their father had faked their own suicide. <laughs> if there is, I, I apologise deeply for your misfortune because... <laughs> for your almost misfortune. That's a really crap thing to happen. You know, we all yeah. have difficulties with our parents for one reason or another, but that's a really shitty thing to do to a kid and to the rest of your family. Oh, to my little sister who was so... She was like, two, she was like three, so she never... 
even you know established any kind of you know no bond. so it did two things to you it on one hand it completely fucked you over but on the second hand it gave you some extraordinary material yes which you have milked extensively through yeah. your titles yeah yeah so 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 where do you draw the line there because you are an existentialist i think that's fair to say I and think so. you're able to objectify things that happen to you and turn them into material which is your mm. your genius uh, do, do you think if your dad hadn't been such a complete and utter prick <laughs> that uh, you would have been... Would you have been on a different journey, do you think? Oh, probably. Um, you know, God knows what it would have been. But, you know, there's no doubt it would have been different than, than the reality I've experienced. But uh, um, I was talking to, to Michael Schaefer, who was on earlier tonight in the stand-up bit, who was, who was wonderful. He was fucking great. But... Um, he, I was saying to him, he was, t- he was talking about the stuff that he talked about and the testicular stuff. The audience listening to this is going to be going, what the hell was that? But um, he was talking about that and I said, yeah, I said, isn't it interesting? Because I said, for me nowadays, something terrible can be happening in my life. Like, I can literally, I can be breaking up with someone or I can be in a situation where there was at one point my life was being threatened by someone I actually thought I was going to die, like in the here and now. And this is, you know, years ago. But I said, those things can be happening to me. And while they're happening, a small bit of my brain is going, if you survive this, this is going to be great material. You know, like, you'll make, you'll make money out of this and uh, who's going to have the last laugh, you know? Yeah. You know? So it's, it's really weird, you know, that, that, you know, all these terrible things can be happening, but, but your brain is processing them into, into comedy, you know, even before they've finished happening. Well, I call it creative revenge, I suppose. <laughs> great. Great term, and it's a, a, a and it's a way that most artists artists can use just about anything that happens to mm-hmm. them and turn it into material, and then be able to regurgitate it and create the narrative frame, if you want to put it like that. Yeah, but yeah, absolutely. Jumping a little bit more into that, when you took off as a comedian, there was an establishment called The Last Laugh in Collingwood. Just show of hands, anyone here that went to that place? Look, there's been nothing yeah. like it before, and I don't think there's anything like it since it was uh it was created by john pinder Mm. and uh may his may he rest in peace uh and it was i I don't think there's been a comedy venue quite like it it had incredible heart and soul and it really was the birthplace of many of the uh the great comedians that are still working today and you certainly worked your way through uh that place (laughs) and and (laughs) worked your way through that place the nice way of saying the tills, the <laughs> bottles of spirits. Yeah, yeah. But it was an, it was an iconic uh, venue to work in, and yeah. I think it was the heart and soul of comedy in Melbourne. There were other places, the Prince Pat, and so yeah. on, but nothing was quite like the Last Laugh. No, and the Last Laugh was um, was kind of uh, it was interesting because it was a little bit more mainstream on on one hand. Um, certainly, the main part of it, the Last Laugh downstairs, was 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 quite mainstream, and and you know still still great. But um, but upstairs there was a little venue called Le Joke, and that was like a hundred seats. It was the perfect size comedy room. Um, it was you know a lot of people. It was like their favourite room in the world. Like a lot of friends from overseas would come over and they loved that room. And uh, it that was that was you know the real heart and soul for me of that building was what went on up there because it was like that upstairs room was where people would take risks and take chances and make up stuff you know that make up material and go out on the edge and you know find the edge and you know what's crossing it and what's not and then when they establish their show they take it downstairs and do it to the 
to the main audience, but it was, God, you saw some incredible things happen upstairs, you know, like crazy things, you know, people doing bizarre things, setting themselves on fire and, you know, just nutsoid things, but uh, but some incredible moments of comedy. You know, well, there was a pivotal moment there too where TV started to take off as far as comedy went yeah. and it was the late 80s and the comedy company and the big gig started to mm. take off. And Rob Taranto, again... Uh, my Dave, Dave. Dave Taranto. Yeah, I yeah. do apologise. Dave Taranto. I can edit that too. <laughs> <laughs> so Dave Taranto actually put out a little bit of a warning and he said to all of the live comics, be careful going on TV. It may actually cannibalise your material. Yeah. So what happened for you at that point in time? Because you must have been offered many opportunities to go on television and, you know, strut your wares. Well, I, I did quite a bit of TV around there, never, um, I was never, you know, offered my own show, but uh, I was involved in a lot of other group shows, you know, like on, on TV and stuff, and uh, enjoyed enjoyed that a lot, but um, but was, you know, using heroin, and, um, you know, it just became untenable for a lot of people, they, you know, they didn't want to take their risk, and uh, so, you know, like, I remember once nodding off on live television, you know, just like, uh, and somebody, you know, saying, like, oh, yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. You know, and, and they, you know, I've never, I've never uh, held, I've never had bad feelings to any of those people who reached a point where they went, no, we can't hire you. Because I understand it, you know. I, I go, well, yeah, you know, if you are producing a TV show, you can't afford to have one of the main people just, you know, going through the handbags of the audience before the show. Not that I ever did that, but it's not a bad idea. But uh, where's your... Oh, dear. Oh, dear. The host of the show just hid her money. But uh, wise, wise woman. But... Um, yeah, so it was weird because I had friends who were straight and, and, and you know, didn't, obviously didn't do heroin or anything like that and they were, more, um, they were more bitter and angry than I was. You know, I was, I was kind of quite, oh, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's only these days, it's only quite recently that I'm getting a little bit nervous about what the future holds and that's one of the reasons why I'm moving into writing books and plays and, and this particular book... Um, is very filmic, I think. It was originally a film idea, and uh, I'm hoping that um, I can get someone to pick it up and turn it into a film because I think that's that's what I'd ideally like to do is you know write a book in a year or whatever and have it turned into a have it turned into a film. It um, it's it's interesting too. One thing that happened with this book, it opens with a guy missing the death of his mother had an old people's home. He gets there too late. His sister rings him and says, you've got to be here really soon because mum's passing, mum's dying. And he doesn't get the message in time and he gets there an hour after she's died. And I had the idea for this story about five years ago. And my mum was living at home, you know, in her own home and all that sort of stuff. And uh, then a couple of years later, she'd had a couple of strokes and various things and she moved into an old people's home. And then a couple of years after that, my daughter and I were going down to visit her the next day and I got a call from the old people's home saying, I'm really sorry, but she's, she passed away, you know, this afternoon. So it wasn't until about six months later that I went, oh, my God, that's the story. That's actually the story of what, I've, what I thought of for that book, you know. And uh, so writing the book was quite poignant in a way because it was, you know, it starts out the way that, that things ended up playing out for me, but it was just so weird that I'd, you know, it, I'd had the idea before it actually happened. Yeah. 
So you've written two non-fiction pieces. No, only one. The other, the other one was uh, was kind of memoiry too. The other one was tie dye about me getting kidnapped in Thailand. Yes, and you kind of were kidnapped in yeah, Thailand, yeah. as one kind of is. Yeah. In yeah. a sort of a Seinfeld esque, yeah, yeah, sort of. A, uh, but the, you weren't very happy with the publication of that piece, were you? No, because no, they, uh, <coughs> Random House, who I've, who this book is, this book is published. This new one, The Good Son, is published through Penguin Random House. But this was back in the days when Random House was just its standalone thing. But uh, they thought because I was a comedian, it's actually quite a threatening story, and it's funny. But there's a couple of really heartbreaking bits in it. When I used to do it as a live show, there was one bit I remember you know, where I'd, I'd talk about something that happened. A young guy got killed, this young 17-year-old guy in Burma. It was in a civil war in Burma when Hung San Suu Kyi kind of rose to prominence and stuff. And uh, when I'd get to that bit in the show, I remember just the silence. It was beautiful. The, the audience would always be completely silent. They'd just be like... And I remember one night hearing, in the middle of that silence, just hearing one lone voice going, oh, no. And it was just beautiful because it was so, you know, emotional. But, um, but they, the publishers decided, oh, because he's a comedian, we'll, we'll put it out. And they made it a bit wacky, so they tried to make it look like a passport, like shrunk it down to passport size and, and uh, had it, therefore it was on the desks of, bookshops like you know where all the wacky little funny erasers are and stuff and i was like oh how embarrassing you know so you actually called it an, a novel tea <laughs> a novel tea yeah yes indeed yeah so that was your first experience as a published author and then how mm. did it come about that you got to write these things happen uh it was like 15 years after the first book i i i'd had a sort of wasn't a great experience writing the first book so I didn't have any joy for that and uh, I was sharing a house with someone and she a friend of hers was coming over for dinner I don't think I made dinner um, but he was uh, a publisher for um, for Pan Macmillan and she said I'll tell him the story about how there's this story uh, about me almost getting killed in Scotland when I was outscoring drugs to, so I could feel normal, so I could do this show about how I'd given up taking drugs. It was this nightmare, lie within a lie within a lie. And, um, I was, it's, and these guys, these, these gang, were basically going to stab me. And at the last minute, literally at the last, where the guy's about to slash me in the face, he goes, hey... Were you in Neighbours? And it basically Neighbours saved my life. Uh, so, so she said, tell him that story. And it's, it's a really involved story and it's, you know, it's funnier than that. But I told him, and scarier, you know, it gets really scary and then there's that relief of the comedy. And so I told him that story and he was like, oh, have you got any more? So I said, I've got heaps. And so that's where it, it basically it was just luck. It was dinner party luck. Well, and look, so was this, weirdly. The, exactly the same thing happened years later with Roz, my partner at the time, uh, Roz Hammond from... She's on that show, Mad as Hell. And which she, is filming she, in Chalice Street, Newport, just the other day. Really? Yes, yes, oh. indeed. Well, and she's uh, been away, so she's only doing the second half of this one. But, but she had over... 
one of the guys who's in the show, his partner is a publisher at Penguin and we had them over for dinner one night and the same thing happened, you know, tell, tell her the story of that. Da, da, da. So, so which is depressing for wannabe writers who realise yeah. that you actually have to know someone to get published. Well, kind of, you've got to have dinner parties a lot. Yeah, but you also have to finish the book and uh, yeah. what, what I really took away from uh, your memoir, These Things Happen, was well, two, two things. The first thing really dealt with your childhood and the effects that uh, your conditioning had upon you, I suppose. But the second half really started to kind of get away from you, I thought. And I also thought that the publishers probably could have reined it in a little bit because there's a lot of really ugly, ugly, ugly images in there mm. with regard to your drug habits starting to yeah. kind of get completely grotesque mm. and, and you, you sort of try to rein in the heroin but you end up sort of in taking crack instead. The ice. Yeah, ice. And ice. Yeah. And look, the, the truth is I think during the alternative 80s when we were all trying to sort of establish ourselves away from what was conservative Australia, here we are in the new millennium and people are actually trying to take responsibility for themselves to some degree. And I mm. guess what we're looking at is... You know, where are you going to go with this, Greg? How are you going to kind of manage this going forward? Because you've still got great material and you've still got great gravitas and presence. But uh, we need you to stay alive. Mm. Well, I think with the book, and thank you for that. That's uh, that is quite lovely and very, and, and you know, uh, moving. But I think with the book, I tried to... The reason that it gets so ugly and the reason that I didn't really care um, was that I wanted to... I just thought, if I'm going to do this, I've got to do it properly and just totally tell the truth about everything, um, no matter how ugly it is. Because in a way, I was covering myself. In a way, I wanted to do something where no one could ever, for the rest of time, ever come up to me and go, excuse me, what about the time you did such and such? Because I could just go, yep, page 47, paragraph 3, you know, check it out. Um, so I, I just tried to, you know, I, I, I really do think I've got no secrets. I think I've got no secrets, like, uh, which is good and bad, I suppose. But I, I like the fact that I've, I've just put it all out there and, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly. Um, and it's amazing, you know, some of the bits that were really ugly and, and stressful and horrendous uh, I've had people you know I've had people say to me you know oh god I love that part or I've actually had people it's going to sound really weirdly boastful or whatever but I've had people kind of proposition me over bits of that book that I would have thought were just repulsive that were just like but there's I guess maybe there's something about the 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 baseness or the ugliness that some people find attractive you know that that However, however briefly, they, they might just think, you know, oh, he's an animal. <laughs> Ravage me. Ravage me. I'll give you $25. And you can go and buy some of your heroin. But, um, uh, yeah, it was, it was weird. Like, some of the bits that I thought would, would you know, repulse people um, made people find me attractive. And then bits that I kind of thought secretly that I thought people would think I was pretty cool... I've had people say that was, you know, that, that was a weird thing to put in there because it made me not like you.
So, so the, the memoir is incredibly honest, and uh, as you say, they're, they're, or is it? Yeah. Or, or yeah. is it? Yeah. Or yeah. is it? Because as you say, you know, you spent the entire novel uh, referring to the fact that you're trying to give up the ciggies, and that you were on this sort of path to redemption, mm. um, and and we, I guess, regrettably, we can assume that 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 wasn't the cure-all. Uh, and then you've got a fiction piece, and writing fiction is very, very different to writing non-fiction. Yeah. So, you God know, the, the non-fiction component is an ability to really just kind of, you know, spill everything out of there. But when you're writing fiction, you have to construct. Yeah. So how did you manage to do that? And how did you manage to take that switch into the construction of fiction and writing a piece that which is set in a retirement village uh, with a, a man who feels the need for atonement mm. and then goes into a, a love affair? And I'm not spoiling yeah. anything at this no. stage. Yeah. Uh, and then encounters a number of individuals in that retirement village for whom he hopes to bring... Uh, some some respite and some joy. Yeah. Um, I just had the vague, you know, the, the vague outline of the idea and then found, you know, like I, I just move ahead slowly, or not, you know, slowly, but um, the one thing I found that was way easier about writing uh, non-fiction or about writing a memoir was the night before I just... I go to bed and I go, what am I going to do tomorrow? And I basically, with that non-fiction thing I was doing, like I was writing two hours a day early in the morning and sometimes a little bit longer. Like I think I, I, I think sometimes I'd write like two hours a day, sometimes I'd write a certain number of words, like 2,000 or whatever it was, 8,000, I don't know, 2,000 probably. And um, But all I'd do is I'd go to bed and i go, what will I do tomorrow? And i go, okay, what about... What about the the time we all went down to the beach and we were tripping and all that stuff happened? And I go, yeah, I'll do that. So the next morning I'd get up and just write that story, and that would be a chapter. So that was easy on that level. Whereas with nonfiction, uh, it became more difficult because you'd go, all right, and then you know the two of them meet and they go off, and, and then I'd be like, oh, hang on, no, they can't have met then because they didn't know each other then. So, you know, all that stuff became... It became way more difficult for me, you know, and then I had to be much more, you know, having to look look at it, get an overview of this entire story and try and work out, you know, like a timeline and stuff like that that I'd never really done before other than, you know, just my own story, which was easy. Because when I read it, I thought, you know what, I get the feeling that this is the fantasy that Greg Fleet would prefer his life to have been... As one of them, you know, one of the many. Yeah. Um, and we were having a bit of a joke beforehand that many of the characters in your fiction title are names of your ex-girlfriends. But uh, <laughs> Well, then also names of... Every name is the name of either an ex-partner or a friend or an ex-friend or whatever. Every name in there is um, a combination of names of friends or, you know, like the... And I always use the every everything I've ever written. The two main, the man and the woman, are always called James and Sophie. I have no idea why. I've got, I've got a good friend called Sophie, and I've got a, a friend called James, but I, I don't know. Well, you've also got two friends. One of whom's a very well-known actor, and one of whom's <laughs> a very well-known movie star, who, <laughs> who you refer to in your non-fiction yeah, title. These yeah. things happen as the actor and the movie star. Yeah. And my question, purely for personal uh, interest, is. Uh, how did you go about portraying those people? Did you take them the transcripts first and ask them were they okay with that, or did your publicists deal with that, or did the legal department deal with that? How did that, all of that transpire? Because anyone that knows you knows who they are. For example, yeah, um, I just wrote it and then contacted them and said, "Do you mind 
you know. And I, I think uh, one of them, I sent him the stuff and he said, look, can you get rid of this and this and this? And it wasn't, um, it wasn't any of his actions that he wanted removed. It was stuff that really identified him as to, like, where he grew up and what he did then. And, you know, it was like, oh, that can only be me if anyone tries, you know, researching it. So, um, so yeah, I just wrote it and then checked with them and sent them. Um, I'm trying to remember with one of them. No, I must have got permission from both. I wouldn't have done it otherwise. It's, you know, I, I made a point of asking. Because in the age of social media, it doesn't take too much to join those dots. No. And we have to be very careful with people's reputations. Yeah. Because your interpretation of an event is entirely different yes. to the actual event itself. So, yeah, that's... A, and that's what a I'm willing to put out there about myself, other people might be like, no, 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 like, you know, I got away with this. Like, you know, don't... But that's the dilemma of the memoir. In order to make it interesting, you actually have to put yourself out there, yeah. which puts other people out yeah. there. Yeah. Um, okay, so taking a little deeper step into that, you now have a daughter who you clearly adore. Mm. And how do you feel then about having put all that stuff out there and having her being able to access that into the future? Uh, I don't mind... You know, like, she hasn't read... She started reading this book. The Good the, Son? The, the Good Son, which is, you know, is it fiction... Um, she started reading that and, you know, she'll, she'll finish it. But she's, you know, she's been reading it for about a month and she's read about 12 pages. <laughs> and I'm like, good on you, Dale. Um, but uh, she, will, she will finish it. But uh, I don't mind her reading that. I wouldn't mind her reading These Things Happen, but it's brutal. It's really brutal. And, uh, but I think the one thing she did do was she said to me, that she understood that that book had helped a lot of people, which it apparently has done. I've had a lot of feedback from rehabs and places like that and just and individuals who've contacted me through social media or messaged me and said, you know, like, I read that book and it really helped me get through, you know, whatever. And that's really touching and, and great that it can have that kind of effect. So it was good that she saw that. She said, even though, you know, it's probably something I wouldn't want to read right now, she goes, I understand that it's been really helpful to people and that's, that's great. And that was really good because there was one point uh, just around the time of... or just before the book came out, it's actually in the book, me doing this, it was the only time in my life that I had to... It was probably, it was probably the final step, in a way, for me with heroin was this thing where basically I had to go to court. I got... I got charged with theft, which I I did do. You know, there was no question that it was me that had done it. And um, I had to go to court and the the newspapers got onto it. So, you know, they were waiting out the front, you know, with their cameras and stuff. And uh, it was... Uh, it was great because, frankly, people had started to forget that I was a celebrity. So, thank Lord that happened. Uh, um, no, it was... Uh, it was it was terrible because, like, at one stage, one of her teachers came up to her at school, and she's, like, 12 at this stage. And, you know, a 12-year-old girl at school, and one of her teachers came up to her and went, oh, I'm so sorry. And she's like, what? What about... And she goes, about your dad and everything that's going on. And she's like, what's, what's going on? And the teacher's like, oh, dear. You know, so she... You know, that was... I've, I've put her through some stuff, you know, in hindsight... 
oh, you know, like terrible, terrible thing for a, a young girl to have to deal with is, you know, how oh, your father's a, a drug addict, you know, is a junkie thief, you know, and she goes, yeah, you know, and, and you know, I don't know, you know, yeah, but he's funny. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, in hindsight, that's that's one of my few regrets is the effect, you know, some of the effect that's had on her. But yet again, as I said, she has said to me, you know, she understands that a lot of the work that I've done then and since then, and since then I've been doing a lot of things like working with Fiona Patton, who I'd, I don't know if you know, she's, a, she's an MP, but she's very forward thinking and working with her and some uh, police and uh, people involved in the legal business judge, uh, one, one magistrate and some, uh, a lot of lawyers and forward thinking police and Fiona, who's an MP, about drug reform and law reform and stuff like that. And uh, it's, yeah, it's really important because this, the war on drugs is a complete failure and it's, it's costing so much money. And it, uh, you know, if that money was spent, if we legalised drugs, it sounds horrific, but it's actually really good. If we legalised drugs, there would be hundreds of millions of dollars a year to be spent on schools and roads and it would, you know, people would be paying less tax. The government would be selling the drugs to the people so they would get rid of crime. There would be so little, you know, breaking and enterings and muggings and all that would disappear because there'd be no reason for it. You know, people would be. You know. No, no, I agree, but I, th I think it still addresses the symptoms and and not the root cause, which oh. is that there there is obviously a, a deeper sense of pain that yeah. uh, that exists within you and and is yet to be uh, addressed, as far as I can tell. Will always, I think, will always exist. You know, like I I don't see that ever going away, but I think you know we can deal with. We can deal with the way, you know, we can deal with its effect on society. I mean, like, people are always going to want to take drugs and they always will take them, you know. There's, it's, always been, it's always been there and it always will be. And, you know, like we, we advertise, you know, you know, cricket, you know, it's like, you know, booze, 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 get on the, you know. And I've Oh, abused, no, I agree. I was watching that. I've abused I was watching alcohol. SBS the other night and I right. think I counted over eight ads for gambling, which yeah. is... yeah. What's funny about that is that the company is called Ladbroke, which means yeah. man... Man with no poor. money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yes, that's, that's where our government charter has gone. And, Look, and, it's, and alcohol is, without doubt, the most... has caused the most deaths and the most pain of any drug. You know, it, it causes way more death and, and, and agony than any drug. And it's actually probably physically worse for you than, than any drug. It's certainly worse for you than marijuana or heroin or LSD. I don't know, but ice, ice is just bad news all around, you know. But, um, but booze, is, booze is, you know, flat out, full on, dangerous. And, and, you know, I mean, I've abused it. You know, as many of us have, I guess. You know, I've just drunk more than I should have. Uh, recently, I've I've hardly been drinking at all. I took a couple of days off and then just let it keep rolling. And God, I feel a lot better for it. No, I yeah. totally agree. Yeah. Um, thank you for that. Can I just Thanks. get a, a, a scotch on the rocks yeah, over here? Thanks. Mind you, um, I did just have a, I did <laughs> have one whiskey tonight. No, I I, I, I I just is the artist still really a um, a regressive child that is just still struggling to be heard, to be seen, to be appreciated, to be loved? Probably. I mean, I, I know I, I wrote something on Facebook recently about the fact that I managed to ruin 
all these great relationships that I've had. Um, and it, I was questioning on Facebook, I was questioning, I was kind of thinking out loud, like, do I need, like, to me, my greatest inspirations are love and heartbreak, like the loss of love. They, they're the two things that inspire me to work and to write more than anything else. And I, I was thinking, you know, I wonder, do I go out of my way subconsciously to ruin these beautiful love affairs and relationships with people so that that agony that you feel at the end of a relationship, especially if someone's left you, the agony where you think you can't breathe, you don't know how you're going to live tomorrow, you don't know what you're going to do or how you're going to even move forward. And eventually, you know, you move on and, and life goes on. But that that agony and that pain, uh, you know, it's to me is really inspirational. And I was kind of wondering, do I subconsciously do that on purpose, you know? Do I make that? Do I make that pain happen so that I can feel inspired? And it's disturbing. I don't know, but I think your dad has a lot to answer. <laughs> Is he dead? Mm. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to wrap that up there. And thank you so much for coming along and being part of the Stellarton Podcast. Funny about books. The Good Son is Greg Fleet's most recent title. You yes. can purchase. Well, if there's any left, you yeah, might be able to purchase three left, some. There's three left uh, tonight. Otherwise, can I recommend going and getting uh, these shop. things happen from your local bookshop yeah. uh, or get failing them at the library? Yeah, get get these both. things happen and the good son. Uh, but otherwise, thank you so much. Have we got any questions for Greg before we wrap up tonight? No, well, before, they're all good. Before we move on, though, can we hear it for the, the wonderful and the thoughtful and the very brilliant Stella Kinsella? That's right. I'll, um, I'll edit that bit out too. <laughs> I love you. I love you. Thank you so much. It, th this room wouldn't happen without you, our wonderful local audience. We're, yeah. we're very, very... You're a really good audience. Uh, ...dedicated and grateful to have Seriously. you here. Can I do some thank yous? I want to thank the crew here at the Newport Bowling Club, uh, to Stewie and the crew at the bar. I want to thank Scotty, who is the heart and soul. Oh, there's Stewie at the back. Scotty, who's the heart and soul. Uh, who runs this place, and to uh, the wonderful Dave Stokes, who has been recording this this evening and will be putting all of this together. Uh, thank you also very much for being here. It wouldn't be any good without having an audience.